Wait, well, you were late it, because you were on a webinar about a USB plug? No, I always watch and live tweet the Apple events. Today was no different. So we have a more powerful phone and a USB-C plug. Is that the whole event? And the watches are better? At, at a high level, there was a lot of subtle updates. The expensive pro phones are getting some of the more interesting features. But it's mostly like material changes. The thinnest steel yeah. rail ever. What's really funny is that the biggest change is actually the USB-C plug, which means that it's, it's essentially killing off the lightning plug, which has been an Apple staple for a long time. Yeah. It's much ado about nothing, right, Alex? Well, well yeah. Well, what I was trying to say is th there's really big updates around their environmental stuff. They're no longer going to use leather. Some of their batteries are 100% recycled cobalt. These are actually pretty big moves for a company that scale and pretty impressive. I can see Brian rolling his eyes because anything new and interesting is eye-rolling. They don't have anything in the pipeline if they're like talking about leather. I What's interesting about media companies in the pipelines that are just turning into service companies is that their new innovation? Yeah, I agree. I, I included <laughs> I, webinars. I, I we should do this as a webinar. I just did a webinar with Bluconic. Stop it. Stop. It was about generative AI. Was it just an hour of you rolling your eyes and complaining about tech bros? No, I don't do that. I got no problem. <laughs> that's, your, that's your role, Alex. Oh, is it? I did a story today off a podcast. I did a podcast, really, with Jason Wagenheim, who name-checked Alex. I was, like, talking to him about, like, where the business is going and stuff. And he was saying how, like, they're doing most of these agency-like deals. And he called them 360 campaigns. But before he, like, mentioned it, he mentioned he was, this is going to drive Alex crazy. He oh, called boy. it 360 campaigns. So <laughs> you're really developing quite a persona as like the bete noir of the digital advertising. Well, media companies are turning themselves into media agencies, which is the second worst business after being in a media company. And so like... The so that was, I thought was really better. interesting. And Troy, you would have like... So you remember, it's funny, when Bustle launched in 2013, both you and I, because I went back and read it, were in the New Yorker like pre-launch feature. I met the, I can't remember the name of the journalist. I met Lizzie her Whittaker. and Brian. Yeah, I met Lizzie and Brian at Mylino, which was the great Roman restaurant in the Gramercy Hotel. And Brian was kind of holding court and was delighted that a New Yorker reporter was following him around. She gave him the shiv though. She called him like a pudgy overgrown six-year-old then in the story. And then he Woof. started working out. So it was good yeah. in the long run. That would motivate it's me. It's amazing to reflect just for a second on how far the media industry's come since then because Brian's known for his provocative ways and at the time would say that he was going to be the new Condé Nast or Hearst or whatever. You know, as it turns out, Oh, it, the other thing he said at the time is that he would take down refinery, which seemed inconceivable at the time because refinery is a really healthy $100 million business. And turns out that refinery went to the shit. Bustle is certainly a much stronger company. You know, the magazine companies have really had a hard time. So in a way, they all got their sort of comeuppance, but especially refinery and relative to the competition, I think that Bustle's done very well. And one of the main reasons is Jason. I mean, I think Brian's real smart and stuff. Some people find him distasteful, but he's very, very Great LinkedIn uh, endorsement right there. <laughs> but Jason, I, I read the summary to your podcast and I was like, 
oh my God, is this refreshing? Because actually it was entirely consistent with what Jason told me at lunch in the summertime. No, he was actually and, honest. It was a great conversation. And, it, and he was like, yeah, he was honest. And it wasn't like media bullshit. It was great. I want more guests like that. Because there's a lot of times where I'm like, oh God, Oh God, I know, I understand how it goes, but like, it's a flaw of the system. But I thought one of the things that, that really stood out, and this is when we were texting about it. I, I included this in my little write-up, uh, Alex. I don't think you get my newsletter, but that's okay. And oh, I do, I do. I, oh, good, I do. good. Yeah, Make copy sure and paste it into an AI and get us to summarize it for me. Then okay. read it out and do you click on the blocks. webinar links? Register, we need first-party data. <laughs> really? I'll try, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to get in there. But one of the things that was interesting to me is like we talk about a different era is how different that business is. And it is agency-like to me. I don't know how you would describe it. I mean, you can talk about studio models and stuff like this. But, you know, with something like the nylon house at Coachella, the nylon house at Art Basel and getting the influencers and the DJ and the party. And it's like, wait, this is a different business. And in, is this the path for a lot of lifestyle media, Troy? I suppose there's an inevitability to it. If you can't harvest your primary media asset, which is how media works, right? You either sell access to it or you parcel it out on a CPM basis. Then you have to use your other assets, which are your brand and your ability to wrangle talent and to create content as is how you create value. And it's distributed by other means. So you sort of create the vibe, you know, either through an activation or through content or through partnering with talent. And then you distribute it, as Jason pointed out in your podcast, wherever you want to distribute it. So you use your primary handles and stuff and distribute it in social, but you can also pay to activate it. And what's he made the point that he can get, you know, a million eyeballs to a piece of content or a hundred million eyeballs to a piece of content. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have the audience. Well, that, I think so that, Ozzy that. was the purest. Maybe this guy was on to something. Funny. So yeah, it makes you more than a services company because services companies don't have the media brand to work with or the editorial talent or, you know, in many cases, the in-house creative to make a kind of broader activation content offering. But yeah, you're just a fancy agency with some more assets. And your reaction to this, Alex, was terrible business. <laughs> well, of course, it's not wonderful news because the great part of media is that you have no marginal cost when you increase revenue, right? It's a marginal revenue kind of thing. And so what, what's always happened historically in lifestyle media, magazine media is that the number one in a category always made like multiples of what the number two made. Because imagine you're a magazine, you're, you know, the second or third player in a category versus the first player. The first player could basically have a similar expense structure, but way more revenue. So you'd make way more money. You know, in the services business, you make, if you run it right, you make 20 points and that's it. You're probably more likely to make 15 points. What is interesting about Jason acknowledging how tough it is out there and their evolution of a company as a company is it's going to be a few more years before Brian gets the exit he wants. Well, I think also the question ends up being what that exit is, because when a lot of these companies, Bustle didn't raise as much as the other ones, but when they raised, it was the idea that, that they were raising from the type of investors who had expected tech multiples and whatnot. And obviously, look at BuzzFeed, that is not happening. 
Alex, your reaction to the services busy were like like an agency and like it was very, I would say dismissive because... Well, you, what about your, didn't you tweet a photo out of the BuzzFeed newsstand in LaGuardia Airport? I did because like, and I put it on Instagram because I, I just think it's kind of like amusing relic in some ways. And I got multiple responses that just said, LOL. It really is to me a testament to like how far a lot of these brands that were poised to sort of take over the world, if you will, have fallen to the point where it's kind of funny to see a BuzzFeed store. I mean, I bought a water there, so I'm doing my part. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. Nice one. (laughs) I did. It was it was fine. It was just water. So whatever. But Alex, you had you had said services businesses are tough. You've been involved in services business. Yeah. And look, it's better than being dead. I mean, it's a pathway. I put it in my newsletter, like in a storm, every port, whatever. Yeah. But give me your background on this and why this is not like an exciting path, if a necessary one. Well, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the people who put money into these businesses are probably not stoked that they're turning themselves into services businesses. Because the services businesses you know, it's hard. It's very labor intensive in a labor market that's already pretty tough. It doesn't scale very well, at least beyond a point. It's hard to optimize a lot of the things that you do because you constantly have to improve the product you're making. And on top of that, and you're making that product for clients. So you're not really building a ton of your own equity. A lot of the stuff that you do as a services business, you give away at the end of it and then you get cash in return. So it's really like just like an effort for cash business. One thing that at least, you know, that technology and, and media companies are meant to bring is this these margins that are created by leveraging IP, leveraging technology, both of which scale really well. But just saying like, yeah, we'll make more events and we'll hire more people. It's not a great business. And ask that of anyone that's working in an advertising agency or as a consultant, you know, it's not a great business at all. Yeah, I can remember there was this strange period of time in, I think it was about 2013 or so, like Google hired like a guy from YNR and a couple other people. And people were like, oh, Google wants to take over the advertising agency business. I was like talking with an ad agency yeah. executive. He's like, they want this business? They can have it. I'll take theirs. <laughs> like, yeah. have it. Go ahead. And look, there's there's tons of agency businesses out there, but the the dynamics of them are are far different. I also think it's a distraction, right? Like I'm facing this a little bit. I'm trying to build our own products. I can thankfully get jobs as a consultant while we're building some of our products, but it's very easy to kind of get sucked into that that type of a world and it takes over your time and then you're not building your own equity into your own things. And I, I think it's a distraction, right? So if, if 70% of your money is coming from the services business, your services company, you're going to stop, you know, you're going to stop putting the effort and money hey, into Alex, the media business. I'm a consultant, Alex. We're all in the services business here, aren't we? Sort of. I'm in the services business. I just did a webinar. Yeah, me too. But I like to get on the cap table. Well, that, that gives you some offset. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say, that at least when I do a, a, a consulting gig or an advisory gig, I, I'm usually on the cap table. I don't think you usually do that as a, as a company where, where you work as an agency. So I think... It's I just, should be on your cap table, Brian. Why am I not on your cap table? <laughs> yeah. Have you invested any money in it? In I've invested sw- time in Very booty now. So I put up with you. Yeah. I, oh, by the way, I did. I finally did a deal. Am with, I an advisor with, to the with Dan Ads? I did. I finally, I finally did a deal with Dan Ads. I'm talking at the self serve summit. If anyone wants to come by, <laughs> is, is, Troy, Troy, is there a way to track how many people end up at 
Brian's webinars that listen to this podcast because it seems like we're know. one of us. Jason brought like, up the Curve Cafe. He remembered it. I'm telling right? you, yeah. breaking so through. We're the like clutter. pretty top of funnel Good. for you here, so we need to cut. <laughs> we, we are. They should have a buffet at the self serve summit. So <laughs> <They> follow <should>. that. <laughs> he gave that advice. See, yeah. you should charge for that type of advice. Can I get 10% on that deal? I, it took two and a half years. I don't know. <laughs> Multiple marketing people. But we got there. We got there. I like it. I like it. We got there. So more really? of that. Alex, you haven't like funneled any business by the way, as far as I can tell. Have I not? I don't so know. I had, a, I had a funny thought. I should write up a blurb on this, but I haven't. So last night I was technically, I guess I was at the highest pub in Ireland. It's called Johnny Fox's. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, it's a nice pub. It's nice like a pub. weird sort of thing. Although there's like a gift shop sort of vibe to it that I don't like. With well, I don't know, but the Guinness is tasty, and I had a I had a pie, and it was good, and all that. You know, there's a it's fun. It's a fun place. Anyway, the music and stuff. We I I took an Uber back, and the guy had this cable in the car. Those cables that have LEDs in them. It looks like sort of light is pouring out of them. So the front of the car with these lit up cables look like kind of like a cheap strip joint. And it just a couple observations because first of all, I thought it was part of the car and the car had all these sort of accessory lighting things that made it very flashy. And he said, no, 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 I bought this. This is a, a cable for my phone. It like literally looks like you're sucking out of a straw. You're sucking light out of a straw. It's like a, it's just like a normal, I guess it's a USB cable that has LEDs in, in the cable. Anyway, he said, oh, yeah, I got it. It's great. I bought it from this new website called Timu. And, <laughs> and, and it made me think of a couple things when he said that. It, it made me think of the following. First of all, most people don't know about all the stuff that we concern ourselves with, like is Elon an asshole or is Timu spyware? You know, like all the stuff that people in, you know, in the business talk about. To him, he was get. he said, I got it on Timu. It was like three euros and they shipped it to me in a week. And then I was thinking, oh my God, first of all, he, he doesn't care. He got it from Timu. He doesn't give a shit about the company. He just got what he wanted for a low price. I was thinking in the world, there's really two models. You're either price led or you're luxury. I mean, I guess you, you compete on features, but features are really just price, right? So you're either price led or you're luxury. And that price kind of wins 90% of the time. I mean, I'm not, it's just good prices. That's what people care about. And that the business model for Timu is either for a $3 cord delivered to you that lights up like that is hurting someone. I mean, someone is, or, or maybe not hurting someone, but the business model is what? We're going to make it up in the next transaction because we ain't making money on the $3 thing. So we got to make it like we're acquiring you with that transaction. Or we're installing spyware on your computer and we're going to somehow harvest you in another way by selling you to the Chinese government or something nefarious. Or I don't know what the third model is that somehow we're making money off a $3 transaction. And this guy doesn't give a shit. He just wants he, his throw. He, he's got a cool Uber and he's got the light and we thought it was cool and that was it. But it, it's just interesting to me, like you think media is a tough business. How about commerce? It's a really tough business. This is a, you know, to sort of bring it back to Jason for a minute. We talked about commerce and he was very against 
they try to do like on-page commerce transactions. And I believe you guys were doing some, some of that got shut down recently. Well, the difference with those guys is they actually put the shopping cart on the page. It wasn't an affiliate business. So affiliate was painted as, oh, that's just the first step. Because when people talk to me about commerce, I'm like, are you talking about affiliate? Like you, you've invented something. I'm like, affiliate's been around since the dawn of the commercial internet. I'm like, no, this is commerce. We're going to sell our own like products. We're going to build like a shopping engine, blah, 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 blah. That stuff all got oversold, it seemed like. I mean, from what he was saying, they got tons of people on the page. People don't want to transact on bustle.com. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I think there are businesses that are making a go of it. I'm really impressed with the progress that Chris Gimbel's making on Milk Street. And it's media and commerce, but it feels like a store and he's built the credibility to earn that business. What do you see then as being the difference of those that can execute this first? Because I think a lot of times it's big publishers where this is another incremental budget. And if you're going to make it like your main thing, you got a shot. But if you're yeah. looking at this as your fourth or fifth like revenue line, then eh, probably not. Well, I saw it firsthand because we had a business called Shop Bazaar that was not unlike what Brian was trying to do. So it was taking inventory, selling luxury products, etc. The first problem is typically if you're selling other other brands, you have a cost of goods problem. So the product costs you so much. By the time you acquire the customer and pay all your expenses and stuff, you don't make any money. I think it's hard per the comment that Jason made to convince people that you're a, a real trustworthy, credible retailer. In fashion, you have a lot of complexity around sizing and inventory management, stuff like that that comes along with the category. Returns. In returns. And in the case of Milk Street, they sourced their own products. They created their own products. They have a probably one of the best-selling kitchen knives in the country that they designed and manufactured and all that. So the margin profile is good and the product is exceptional. I think that pantry and kitchen goods is a better category. And quite frankly, because of the kind of experts they are, they have a lot of credibility in that category that matters to people. So and by the way, it was a long journey. So it is a significant part of the business, but it took, you know, three years to sort of get everything right, to get sourcing, inventory management, customer acquisition, all the platform related stuff to get all that down took several years. To use one of your heuristics, like you need to major in this. It can't be yeah. one of two minors alongside yeah. events. That's right. Like you can dabble in events and branded content and stuff. I don't think you can dabble in commerce. You can dabble in affiliate. Yeah, that's right. All right. Should anyway, we we're off topic. Should we get on? No, no, no. We're on topic. We're on topic. No, the, the recurring topic. Media is a terrible business and everything, well, everything that media companies try yeah. to do is just ends in more tears. That's what makes it interesting. This came up on the webinar I was just on. <laughs> <laughs> no other business is, is under just constant existential threat like this. It's, it keeps you on your toes. It's great. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Please don't talk webinar anymore. But hey, Alex, I think what really happened after Brian had his meltdown is that he basically <laughs> decided that he'll do begrudgingly do the podcast, but it'll just be his sort of branded content offering. Or his promotional offering. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, yeah. I got an inspiration. Do you ever listen to the Monocle podcast or read Monocle? It's a ludicrous brand. The fact that it exists, I'm just, I'm obsessed with it. Right. I, I want to make it a life mission to, to meet Tyler Brule someday. 
And he actually apparently invented a circumflex on, on his view of his name. But they do a really great job with weaving in their like different self-promotions. So I'm taking it. Right. But you know, the difference with Monocle and us is that they all get paid for it. Well, I, hey, look, we're talking about business models. I am totally in favor of a DTC business model for people versus algorithms. If you guys want right. to go that direction. But otherwise, we're going to have to go the indirect model and it's kind of messy. Well, I really like creme brulee, if it's any relation. <laughs> I don't know. See, on most podcasts, you don't get that quality of surrealistic humor. Yeah, exactly. One of the topics that I had wanted to to talk about, because I think it's kind of tangentially related, is about Instagram as like the ultimate advertising. I thought we were talking about bundling and cable. We're going to, we're going to, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there for, through Instagram. I just want to talk a, bit, a little bit about Instagram and what makes it like an amazing, because I think it's the best ad experience that I've seen in media, to be honest with you. Because paid search is a great, it's a home run model for, for Google <laughs> in particular. But let's face it, they're not generating demand a lot of times. They're just harvesting it. But like with Instagram, it's perfectly executed. It's a really good ad experience. I think I would prefer Instagram with ads than without ads. That's a nice thing to say. Isn't that? See? Yeah. Would you want to know why? Yeah. Why Why is it? I assume it's just because like they... Well, you tell me. But I think it's it's the feed. It works really well within the feed. And then they have so many freaking advertisers that I looked at like an e-bike and I have discovered a million e-bike companies. I had no idea there were so many e-bike companies. Mm. Obviously, the ad models or ad products are easiest when you have intent. So that's the Google case. And then in Instagram's case, you don't really... I mean, you have so many people and so much data that you, you can try to understand where intent is, but you don't have people asking for things the same way they do on Google. But then you have the other next dimension of the ad product, which to me is the sort of mechanics of it, i.e. does it fit in the feed effortlessly or is it native? Do you have payments connected to it? Do you have you know a catalog connected to it in the case of you know having commerce? Does it feel easy to use and accessible? And then is there the whole buying infrastructure on the other side for the advertiser that makes it easy to find audiences, target audiences, execute campaigns? And they have all that, right? So the consequence of that is they have a huge amount of scale in terms of number of advertisers. And I think that's key because when you have that and then you have lots of audience, then you can do them the thing whatever, which advertising needs to do, which is you can solve the matching problem. And they match incredibly well. You get stuff on Instagram that you are interested in. And as a result, you know, they basically completely hijack the lifestyle media advertising category. And it's better than it ever was. I agree with you totally. Yeah. I, I can remember over the years, all the efforts like Project Devil to make. Like, yeah, that was a AOL's fancy ad. Platform. Yeah, we're going to make a fancy banner ad that is like the same as like the full page ad in Vogue. And, and I believe Tim Armstrong was was hawking this at an advertising week. Like, I think it was it was admirable. You know what? They cleaned. Alex and I did the same. We called it the clean campaign. We had t-shirts and everything. We cleaned up pages. Yeah. Cleaned up pages, better ads, bigger formats, all that. So Alex, you, know, you used all... to work on ads. I mean, what? why the hatred of that? Oh, Alex knows a lot about ads. Yeah, maybe I mean, that's I why it's maybe, it. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I did. I don't communicate this well enough, but I, I come from. You've been in the belly of the beast. Yeah, yeah, I know it well. 
And and part of the anxiety around advertising is the fact that I think they just became worse for the readers and the consumer and just better for the platforms and the, the large systems. I, what, what I wonder is like, it seems like it's almost impossible for, let's say, publishers to have an ad experience that is like Instagram's in that, at least to me, the Instagram ad experience is additive in some ways. And if it's a tax, it's a reasonable tax. It's not a ridiculous tax. If you go to most publisher websites, it's so adversarial. It's so anti-audience. There's so many reasons. There's so because many there's so many reasons. And I think part of that is, so a lot of the things that Troy said, right? Like mechanical, right? The UX of Instagram fits perfectly. You know, we've been talking about native ad formats and the ads just fit, fit into the flow the same way TV ads used to. You know, it's actually the most Not only that, there, perfect there's not as format. much. Every media property that I encounter these days just reeks of desperation. And... When you have 100 million users, maybe more of 500 million users and no content costs, you can develop an extraordinary ad platform by side and the creative side than, you know, the user sure. experience. Sure. You can manage ad density with grace. That's the biggest problem that we have today is these ads that are so desperate on publisher sites because you got to get yield up that it just destroys the experience. Right, and also, and also like it's, you have different incentives when you're taking a visitor to your site as, oh my God, we better monetize this visitor as much as we can because that person's going to leave and not come back for a week rather than knowing that people are 100%. coming in multiple times a day. And on top of that, the important thing is that it changes the mode of the visitor. When I go to a site to read an article, I'm there to read that article. I go on Instagram with a meandering feeling that I'm just going to browse around. I don't have any specific tasks in mind. I do it multiple times a day, right? And so therefore, clicking on an ad and getting distracted is probably a pretty common occurrence compared to, say, being on a, on a news site. So modality is a hugely important factor. Right? It's also why commerce is so hard to get right usually. But Instagram users are there to fuck around. So like, why not go and try out some new tactical material pants with stretch fabric? <laughs> Designers, that's here. <laughs> oh, it's all... Uh, wait, what do you, what, what, actually, let's play this game. What do you guys get? I get pants, stain-resistant pants, cable management, and lately I've been getting... No, that's pretty much it. I get e-likes. <clears throat> I get grills. And then also like, you, like gr grills for your teeth or for your no grill like <laughs> uh, grilling. I follow a lot of like food accounts, so like I get into like the uh, I get like meat services, but I'm very very heavily in analog and e bikes. Are they called analog bikes? What are they called these days? Normal bikes, old fashioned bikes. So a couple a couple little anecdotes about that at the risk of divulging my content preferences. I found it interesting the other night when I was sitting with my son and his friend, my son's back from LA and he was at the house. They don't congregate around the television. They sit in a room and they all look at their phones independently. And we were talking about what segments we were in. And I was, I'm currently on Instagram because I watch to conclusion, a couple of fart jokes or people pranking other people by like farting. And so I'm in the fart segment now. And so they keep serving because it's all dynamic segment creation. So they're serving a lot of them to me and they're, they've been shared with other members of my family. So they obviously got a couple data signals. They think that's the content I want and I'm in that segment. But I thought we're not talking channels or programs in the home. We're talking segments. 
which is kind of a sign of the times and sharing, Hey, hey, you got to look at this, like handing phones to one another, as opposed to watching entertainment as a, as a family, we ain't watching the Waltons. That's for sure. Well, that's what I do. I, I want to get off this, but like with the privacy stuff, I do think some of that is just age related in that it's almost like a game with younger people. They understand exactly what is going on. I mean, that like sort yeah, of totally. Wall Street Journal thing of what they know and stuff like this. It's, oh my God, no, this is not a, this is an old person problem. It's not a young person problem, at least to me. Okay, let's move on to the rebundling. Did you guys watch the football game last night? No. Aaron wow. Rodgers went, went like storming onto the state onto the field with the American flag, and then he was like being carted off like four plays later. Anyway, it was on ESPN. ESPN came to a conclusion of its fight with Charter head off that sort of existential challenge. But ESPN is, I was speaking at this event last week in Boston, HubSpot's inbound conference. And I got this question about some word association about ESPN. But by the way, I, have you guys been to any of these tech trade shows lately? They're massive. It's like massive, like 10,000, 15,000 people, just like shockingly large, just inspiring. Is it inspiring? It's, it is inspiring. The Survey Monkey, but you, I shared with you. Does this, what, what type of emotion does it inspire? It just, it's the like the musky aroma of capitalism. I love it. Anyway, I had the question about ESPN and I was like, future HBR case study. That's the funniest thing you've ever said. What? The musky aroma of capitalism is so true. Oh, it yeah. smells like boot, booths. I used to say that suits. about our the Digiday summits, like the eight minute meetings. There's a, there's a heavy, heavy musk of, of capitalism that was hanging. <laughs> hanging in the room. It was great. We didn't have that in camp in Canada. <laughs> but you guys are like socialized medicine and stuff. Anyway, it's an HBR case study uh, waiting to happen, I think. Trey, give me your like breakdown about, I mean, are you fascinated, first of all, about his story? Otherwise, maybe it'll be a short segment. Endlessly, actually. I think it's really interesting. I don't know where to start, Brian. First of all, like, it's interesting to briefly consider what was Cable's undoing. So I thought about that for a second. And first was like, we shifted our construct of how we get entertainment from timeline to library. And we lived in a world of constrained choice. And it shifted when Netflix, you know, evolved their DVD by mail business to watch whatever you want on our platform. And suddenly we had this library construct and it. It's better. You know, you can watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it and you can watch it without ads. And so obviously that was a big factor. And then you had, I think as important was we got used to the bundling of access with content, right? So you had to deal with your cable company to get provisioning of your internet and cable service along with it. You picked from a really constrained number of choices and it was great for the business, obviously. And then if you wanted to make changes, it was extremely painful. And now in the direct-to-consumer model reality that we live in, you can add or subtract services with the click of a button. And all of these companies, once content was separated from the provisioning of, of a wire into the home, I think you got two good outcomes. One was the people that were selling connectivity had to get better at it. And there was more competition. And the people that make content had to build platforms to serve you. And they did it much better. And so that started to put pressure on the system. And when Netflix had runaway success, everybody wanted to get into that market without maybe an appreciation of how good the past was. Because you can consider for a second, could the outcome have been any different? And I think it's an interesting question. If everybody had said, we want to preserve the bundle, 
could cable companies... Wait, wait, who's everybody? Who's everybody? Well, all the interested parties. So the content providers, the cable networks, the networks, and cable. If you had said, let's not let this thing go, it's the greatest business model of all time, what would you have had to do? It's worth asking. But that's impossible. You can't stop. I mean, that's the... Right. No, but it's not no, but, but But actually, Brian, actually, Brian, one could say that decisions were made in how content was given to Netflix and let, they thought they had old content and well, they gave Netli- Netflix a cheap deal to put that stuff on there. Yeah. You don't give your content away. You develop a, a really good consumer platform. You, you create a library offering next to the programming guide. You up customer service. You give more choice to the consumer. You'd have to do all those things. But here's the thing. If, if the cable companies started doing that, I think the content companies on the other side would have said, hold it, slow your roll. Because it's bad for the economics if, pe- if you get more churn, if you, know, you start putting our content in the library, if you start compensating us by how much people watch. And so I think it would have created an untenable political situation between service provider, content provider. Or it was just bad decision making through arrogance where they would were looking at these new platforms as beneath them and, and they felt that they were invincible. I don't disagree with you, but like just simply improving the user experience of the cable products, right? They never really invested in that. It remains terrible because people were buying it whatever the case, you know, just the quality of the content went down, quality of the experience went down, customer service was terrible, it was impossible to disconnect from, you know, if you called and asked to cancel your service, they would make your life a living hell. These are not companies that were treating their customers well. So Yeah, but on top of that, it's also, there's also a human dimension to it, I feel like, and in that, and this was brought up to me by Andrew Rosen, who has this really good newsletter called Parkour, about this. He used to be at Viacom. And he talked about how all the executives running these companies are wholesale. They're wholesalers and they're not retailers. And like they don't have that DTC experience mindset. They don't have the playbooks. They don't have. And more importantly, they were never incentivized to make that change. So I don't, I'm not sure. Like I think it's easy to sort of go back in some ways and be like, really, if you think about it, this was obvious what was happening, right? All through cord cutting, ESPN executives went out there and poo-pooed the idea. They said, we still have 90% of 100 million. That's like massive. Forget about this court. That was only in 2016. They were still saying this stuff. There was a little bit of denialism there. It's always the same hubris, right? Where these guys cannot expect a million years that people's behaviors will change, even though their business was built entirely on new behaviors that destroyed another industry. But their industry won't be the one it happens to, right? If you draw up a little matrix, a little product chart, and you say streaming video, streaming apps and products versus bundled cable, and you look at the pros and cons, there's not a lot that makes you want to keep the cable bundle. And that's, that is nothing new. That was apparent 10 years ago. It's just that 10 years ago, Netflix was still small. But what they couldn't see was that, wait, there's this much better way of doing this. But they couldn't see that people would be inclined to change to that new, better way of doing things. And I think these corporations are to blame for doing that. And they're in some ways still doing it, right? I think Disney overloaded their stuff with bad content. Uh, HBO Max's app is a nightmare to use. They're really not learning. And all of these uh, companies are willing to be disrupted just purely because they're not willing to, I think, respect their customer in a way where they not only feel like they should be providing an experience that is better, but also understanding that people's behaviors change and they can change really quickly. 
And that hey, happens Mr. when you Mr. U, Mr. UX. You know what the hardest UX problem is, Alex? Is a play button. The intersection. No, I know you get caught up in stuff people don't care about. It's, uh, wait, it's the inter- wait. Says the says the guy that just got excited about advertising being good. Okay, okay. <laughs> people love good advertising. I, yeah. I two hundred people were on that webinar. I mean, as long as you have the value. Stop hey it. guys, guys! Okay, yesterday, Alec, I Alec, watched, I watched, Alec. I watched a performance of synchronized walking that had filled a stadium with five thousand people. So people are interested in all sorts of stuff. But we digress. Troy wants to put me down a peg. Tell okay. me. Well, while we're in putting down mode, this isn't about putting you down. It's just a question and a UX problem that I would like to see you solve at some point, which is the intersection of live and library. It's very hard to do well. Okay, so what that means is you're on Apple TV and there's a baseball game on, or you're on Apple TV and there's a soccer game on, and you want to watch it, you got to watch it right now. So that's what the programming guy did. It said, what's on this station at this moment in time? As opposed to a library construct, which is, here's what's new, here's what the algorithm says you should watch, here's the genre, pick what you want to watch. And those are two very different things. One is, this is on right now, tune in. And the other one is find something to watch. And they're very different. They're different, but I mean, there's no, I don't think it's difficult adding a live tab to something like the Apple TV app or your TiVo app, not your TiVo, your Amazon Prime st- streaming stick or whatever. I feel that- have you, seen how, have you seen how Amazon struggled with putting football on the Prime interface? But Amazon is- no Apple str- Amazon is not a, I don't think Amazon solves great UX issues in a, in a pretty good way. I don't think it's the hardest wow, problem wow, to fix. Wow, you really moderated yourself there. Amazon is one of those companies that I don't think takes that very seriously, but which is why it's so hard to find like content that they spend millions on, on their product. You know, Apple's much better at merchandising. I do think that merchandising live stuff is harder, but I don't think it's that hard. If you go to YouTube, they do a pretty decent way of mixing their algorithmic feed with pre-recorded stuff and stuff that's happening live. And, you know, sometimes it's just a card. Sometimes you can categorize and see all the live stuff. It's easy enough to subscribe to the sports that you're watching. It's a way easier to solve of a problem than, than a lot of these other issues that other social networks and media companies have solved. So I don't think that's the issue. But even the traditional cable experience, right, the feed and the table and stuff like that, if you want the best one, it is actually likely YouTube's. These tech companies are running circles in UX around all these other old companies, even though people could just take YouTube TV's experience and make their stuff much better. They don't. And that's because making decisions in those companies is, is hard because the incentives aren't there and they're not able to hire the best people. But I, That's actually, I, this year, you don't have it, I'm sure, Alex, but... I bet you do, Troy. Sunday Ticket moved to YouTube and YouTube TV is now, I just got it. And I, I've gotten the, the Sunday Ticket used to be through DirecTV. It's a nightmare. The worst. The YouTube TV interface is great. It was glorious. A great, it was a great Amazing. Experience. I can't wait to watch it. I'm in Europe right now. And, and so there's all the, I can't watch it. But when, anyway, it was one click to add it. It was so beautiful to add it. I got the 50 right. bucks off, clicked it, done. It's part of my, this is why identity is so important on the internet. Google is really good at managing your identity that strings through all your Google applications, including YouTube TV. Great product, by the way. And now I can add or subtract any of my content bundles with the click of a button. There's no call centers. There's no nothing. It's just perfect. 
and also the interface itself is wonderful. But I yes. want to highlight. And I ca- I got to I canceled it with one click once the Olympics were done. There you I go. watched none of it. Got it just for the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Cyprus had a great team this year. Oh really? <laughs> no. But I will watch the MLS on Apple TV. You were you ain't start a, a sentence, Troy. Sorry. Well, the the pieces of the puzzle. It feels like there's going to be a couple of scaled entertainment bundles. Netflix will be one of them. Some combination of this is going to, by the way, completely reconfigure existing entertainment companies like NBC. But so it'll be Netflix. It'll be some mix of like Paramount, Peacock, and Max or Warner. But what's interesting, the pieces of the puzzle that that I think are the ones to watch are what happens to sports and news. Because if it wasn't for sports and news, you don't need NBC anymore, right? They're going to take their best programming and put it on Peacock. Nobody's watching NBC in prime time. So the only reason NBC exists is for some sports Olympics. Increasingly, they're putting that on Peacock and football and news. What's interesting about sports, and and I think that Apple kind of gets this, well, I'll call it the notification power of sports. And what I get from a combination of Apple News and Apple TV are notifications when a game is starting or when something important is happening in a sporting event. And so that notification comes through on their platforms, which are the dominant platforms in the world, for me anyway, the iPhone and my laptop. And so now they've got a really important promotional vehicle to get people to pay attention. Sports, the scores, when it starts, action in a game, tennis is going to a final set, something is happening, two-minute warning, whatever. And so notifications in sports represent uh, a really, really important way of getting consumer attention in a platform world where we're all not tuning into the programming guide. That is true, but I would say this. If you look at NBC's primetime broadcast of the NFL last year, they averaged 19.9 million viewers. That's Sunday Night Football. That is marquee. Amazon had Thursday Night Football, which usually are dreadful games. And I'm expecting the same this Thursday with the Eagles against them. So you're about to qualify the statement that you're trying to make? (laughs) Yeah. Well, because I I try to be realistic. Amazon averaged 9.6 million viewers and ESPN did 13.4 million. I mean, free broadcast TV, I think, is still going to have a place for, you don't need a notification. It's like put on the TV at 8 p.m. on Sunday. The, the problems. I don't even, but that's fine, but that's not going to exist in the future. And I don't even know how to turn on the TV to get what you're talking about, nor do my children. What, what do you mean turn on the TV? To watch what? I don't know. You like, you just, you put on the television. The 20 and, million and, people, why are more people seeing NBC's like broadcast of, are they getting notifications to, to watch? Well, they're just watching. I'm saying, first of all, mine was a forward looking statement about the important. And, and so to, for context, for the listeners and for you, Brian, the notion is sports. Yes. In order to maintain, particularly in the big sports like NFL, to maintain the size of revenue expected by the league, you have to be mass. That content has to go everywhere. But m- my point is, it's harder and harder to be mass in our world. To me, sports rights go to places that A, have monetization diversification, i.e. they have deep pockets because they have platforms to sell advertising and other shit. And secondly, platforms that can bring you in to the broadcast with something like the idea of a notification gives a large platform, be it Amazon 
or Apple or whomever else has the scale to do that, it gives them a really important way of pulling customers into their ecosystem. My point is sports is hugely valuable to broad-based platforms and the connective tissue of a live update is a, one of the really important reasons because it's one of the last remaining few things that are not polarized, not polarizing like news that can bring people into an environment. Yeah. So you think it's inevitable that the technology companies are the rebundlers when it comes to this? And that's why I think... Uh, on the sports front, for sure. As sports goes, everything follows, right? I mean, to me, it's like sports is the linchpin. It's what's holding together pay TV. I mean, you can talk about news, but really, I mean, sports well, last. The one thing I don't, I don't understand what happens to news, Brian. Maybe you have a better idea. So, like I said, something like a net network television largely exists today because of sports and news. What happens to, to news as who, whose opportunity is that as it, as it falters? And one of the things I was thinking about is as cable news and network news becomes less relevant, what an amazing opportunity for the New York Times. Oh, shit. I thought, you were gonna say, I thought you were going to say cheddar. <laughs> yeah. I saw Cheddar at the gas station the other day. Did you? Those are the volume super high? Yeah, no. I ran into some people from Cheddar and they said like, apparently the gas station owners like control that. And I went on Twitter then because they said they get irate emails from people because they go to fill up their gas and like the Cheddar is on 11 blasting people. <laughs> what I'm saying is like how news manifests either as like outside of the cable bundle is interesting. Can CNN have a material, profitable news app right outside of the bundle? TBD, don't know. But that business requires scale, right? And to staff your bureau, you need a lot of people, especially if you have a kind of global perspective. You have to have people all over the world. You have to have, you know, just lots and lots of reporting. I think that news is actually really interesting because network positions in news are going to atrophy. I think it's going to be tough times for cable news. And in many ways, a company that's an app and that has their own set of sort of bundled features like games and recipes, like the New York Times, has a chance to continue to grow market share against something that they would have otherwise, we would have never seen them in the same competitive bucket. New York Times versus MSNBC or CNN. Yeah. And, I, and I think those worlds are colliding. So that, that, that's my take on this. Let me ask you this, Alex, like on this world's colliding. Can you imagine like Apple owning Disney? That's always the thing that's like, that's held out there that eventually Apple uh, owns Disney. Yes, I know. I think Apple owning Disney without the parks makes a lot more sense to me. Like the parks would be, I think, culturally really difficult. It would add hundreds of thousands of employees and it's definitely not. But we could have like an iPhone theme area. <laughs> you imagine Goofy walking around with like an iPad. No, we could, ri you could ride the iPhone. That, yeah. The presentation today was interesting because it really showed Apple being very confident. They had a comedy sketch about the environment, which shows a really confident company. And I wonder, you know, bringing on such a large organization like Apple would seriously derail things. And they, they, they don't. And the ones that they did, Beats, you know, it's just lingering there. I mean, was that a so big acquisition? Several billion. No, dollars. I mean it was one of their bigger ones, but it wasn't a huge acquisition. I mean, it was Beats Audio. It was like a billion. It, it made it made Dr. Dre a billionaire, so I think it was pretty big. Yeah. That being said, I I don't see them buying Disney. I think Disney is too too much of a mess. And also, I wonder. I mean, governments are starting to pick up 
the, the season has begun, right? Like Google is, is under scrutiny. All these companies are going to be heavily scrutinized. I don't think there's, we're going to be seeing that many big acquisitions. I think they're all factoring that in now, right? The Microsoft Activision thing is still, if, if that was a difficult acquisition, Apple buying Disney would be even bigger because Microsoft is not a dominant player in gaming. I think we're going to see a lot more sports acquisitions, though. I, th I can see that happening. That seems cleaner. Yeah, I, I think the, the model, it seems to me, is like, why own it when you can do deals without owning the content and getting in there? I mean, if you look at what, what Apple is doing with Messi, that's a better and cleaner model where everyone is benefiting without the stickiness of, you know, straight out. I think, I assume that's why the discussions that apparently are going on between Amazon and ESPN is some kind of transaction in which they're aligned in some ways, but I don't think tech companies want to own large media companies at all. I don't think they want the headaches. I totally buy what Alex is saying. I think Parks is a nightmare. I certainly don't think Apple wants to clean up the legacy media business. I actually think what's going to happen is, this is maybe a bold prediction, but I think that Disney's going to be taken apart. I could see Apple buying some of their IP. I could see Apple being interested in some of their franchise IP. Like the whole LucasArts stuff would fit well into Apple. I mean, Apple owning Star Wars and Indie and all that type of stuff, you know, that kind of works, right? Yeah. I think they're ready. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons to believe that Disney gets taken apart. I like you buried the lead. This is perfect. This is going to be the, I think this is going to be the title. Disney and right just took us. I mean, maybe, I mean, it's took it an hour and two minutes to get here. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about and the those, journey, not the destination. It would be tragic to see the the theme parks in, the, I mean, I, I couldn't personally care less, but, uh, you know, to see them in the hands of like Red Flag or one of those other companies that does a bad job of managing. Six Flags. Six Flags. Six Flags. Yeah. Six I grew flags. up going to Six. Great Adventure in New Jersey. It was always that like a, that's a potpourri of humanity. That being said, if Six Flag bought Disney parks, that would be a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant. I think Disney is, is still strong enough. I, I can see them selling the sports. I can see them selling parts of their inventory, but it's going to be hard to find somebody. If anyone wants ABC, I think. You know, I wondered about that today. I was walking down the commercial strip in Dublin and I saw a Disney store in the main commercial area and there was no one in it. And I was just like, do kids really care about old Disney IP anymore? Is that a thing? I just wonder if the world isn't kind of moving ahead quickly without Disney. It always surprises me how well those live action versions of the old cartoons do, even though there must be some diminishing returns. I think it's in some cases, yeah, they still own like really, really valuable IP. It's, it's true, Alex, but remember... And again, what, what I'm saying is, is meant to be just provocative. But remember that, you know, many families parked their children in front of Disney IP as they were growing up and it created a strong lifelong connection with those characters and those narratives. And increasingly that's been taken over by social media. I mean, a lot of younger kids still spend time in front of the I find it strange watching. adults that have a connection to like Disney characters I think is uh -oh. highly suspect oh shots fired at Disney adults <laughs> without children who go to Disney right. World like for like a honeymoon or something that's weird listen Ryan, we Disney adults is a deal breaker thank god uh, it's my wife story. and I were aligned on that completely it's <laughs> not oh considered god. for a honeymoon Wait, what's the what's the what's the problem? I mean, it's so weird. It's Alex. It's creepy. Come on, it's so weird. I mean, you might as well dress up like a character at that point. 
No, you're it's masking furry behavior. Yes, yeah, exactly. but even Just that, like, who, who gives a shit? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't. Do it. Like, we only have one life to live, right? Who's to tell like people what the what to do? I would have never predicted that you would be standing up for Disney adults, Alex. I mean, I, look, people have a certain type of energy. They need to release it. Like, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum or whatever. I guess we're good, you know? Well, since when did you come out? What, what's going on right now? There's nothing going on. I don't punch down on what people love to do. If you, Except on the whole ad community. But this is like your whole like coastal elite shit. I mean, this is why media companies are failing is because you can't see what you want to act all liberal, but then you still judge people's behaviors. Who cares what people do? I don't care. All right, fine. I take it back. I still think it's weird, though. You know what's weird? It's weird that grown men talk about younger men running around grass holding a ball and talking about statistics of shit that happened 20 years ago like it matters. That's no. also weird. It's, no, sports it's, are the greatest content right, ever. Exactly. So, so that's not like a, a thing, thing we fabricated. I don't think it's any weirder to be like into a vintage edition of like a 1955 Mickey Mouse mug as it is, you know, talking about the time in 72 yes, when, somebody, when somebody dropped a fucking ball. Be serious. Be serious. Are you talking about Nelson Aguilar? I still remember. That. I don't give a shit. Like honestly, like I equally do not give a shit about all these things. All right, uh, I think we should end it on that note. Well, do we... I think we have a good product or or something. I decided to go with the the stuff the because John Kelly was you know with their like newsletters they have the little tidbits like and then it gets to the main thing and so that was the approach for this podcast. Okay, but so to wrap up the bundling conversation, Brian, which, you know, I like to wrap it up for folks. I mean, what's the good news, bad news? Who wins, who loses, right? Like, it's great for consumers. The resolution of the Disney charter thing, which happened today or yesterday, means that increasingly my relationship with my content providers is like a marketplace. Like if I'm buying from a cable company, I'll have choices around what goes into the bundle and what doesn't, which is what consumers have been wanting for years. I can now pick up a streaming service around that. So we're seeing, and we now have Apple and YouTube and Amazon and Roku that basically are platforms to buy content services, right? I can pick and choose what I want to buy. I can use it for a while, like Alex. I can get rid of it after the Olympics are over. So I have more choice. I can get it ad-free or not ad-free. Hopefully, it'll mean that, you know, the people that provide internet connectivity will do a better job of that, or whoever provides my phone service will do a better job of that. Not unlike when my phone was unbundled by Apple from my, my carrier, right? So I didn't have to get a phone. Like, I just go buy a phone get whatever carrier has the best plan and the best coverage. And so it's kind of mimicking that evolution. And so this is a good thing. It's all good. And what I think you'll see is a few entertainment services. Sports will go to the people with the biggest reach and deepest pockets and the best ability to monetize. Sports remains the last bastion of live tune-in, so that's important. And news, who knows what happens to news? It's confusing the news people. On that, I have one more complaint. So it's the bad product of the week. Yeah. Yeah. I was in London and I booked a flight really late to go to Dublin. And my only choice to get there when I wanted was Ryanair. Oh, dear. And it's like Greyhound buses. It's dirty. It's uncomfortable. But more importantly, we had a bunch of bags, right? So I went up and we were there like a good hour. It's adversarial. Oh, my God. So it reminds me of the Timu thing because the whole model isn't based on 
it's based on the $29 fare or the $100 fare or whatever, and then the upsell. You got to get money on the back end of the consumer, which becomes a kind of piranha-like experience. And I get to the desk and I'm an hour and a half before the flight, which by the way, was delayed an hour. So it was technically two and a half hours before the flight. And I said, you know, I got bags. I just thought I would check in. Here's my shit. And they said, you didn't check in online. It's 55 euros ahead. And I said, well, I'll do it now. And they said, well, sorry, sir, you have to do it two hours before. And it was like I was at like an hour 40. So I spent 200 bucks just checking in, checking in to go to from London to Dublin. Monsters. These people are monsters. It's, it's, it is the quintessential adversarial business model. Reiner's is fairly despicable, but it's, at the same time, they have a, like 29 yeah. euro flights. So. Right, but it's allowed. Why is it allowed? I'm going to sound like I'm going to so, sound. Uh, so, here comes the European who wants to regulate. No, no, I'm actually, I'm going to sound uh, pretty Silicon Valley here. I, I don't, I don't want to get into whether the fact that super cheap flights is really great for the environment or whatever, but it's more that this type of anti-consumer behavior is only really allowed to exist in an industry that has monopolized and hasn't innovated in so many years. So what happens to an industry like that, like we talked about bundling, is somebody like Netflix can come in and innovate and then create a product which is much better for the consumer. But the airline industry is so tightened down and so held back by technology that the only innovation is to just drop the prices. And it's really interesting to read about Ryanair's nearly, like the way they make product decisions is nearly like treating the customers like cattle. Like there's stuff that happens from what happens in the meeting room there and the type of principles they abide by. And it's really rough, but that's the only way to innovate in that industry. And it's just a sign that the airline industry is just, you know, it's just stuck there. So would it be like unethical for you to use your powers of like design and product for that purpose? Would it be unethical? Well, like you can use them in order to like improve consumer experiences and stuff. But like, I assume if you're in that role at Ryanair, your job is complete opposite. You're like, okay, like how can we trap these people? And like, how can we like screw them over? Yeah, you're chasing a single, you're chasing a single metric, which is upsell percentage. Well, there's That's upsell percentage and there's also what I think, and it's the bucket you fell into, Troy, and it's called, it's lovingly called the idiot tax. So you know that 5% of people are not going to know what the fuck they're doing. So they're going to end up paying $200 to check in. Those $200, those whales, right, unintentionally, but they're acting as whales, are actually going to allow the dude who's checked in six months ahead of time and bought the ticket on a discount to get a 35-year flight. If it wasn't built around like capturing idiot tax, then I don't think their business model would work. If it makes you feel better, you were an important part of that entire cycle, Troy. That makes me feel better. Well, now I got to leave, but I'm going to go to a good product, which is I'm going to go to an excellent Irish pub. Good product. Great. Enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I welcome your feedback. My email is brian at therebooting.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, and I hope you do, please recommend it to others and leave us a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Great. Good Thank, episode. Thank you, guys. Yep. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye.